surgical palliative care may seem counterintuitive, but surgeons have a rich history of palliating both their patients and their families. I am Red Hoffman, an acute care surgeon in Asheville, North Carolina, and one of 79 surgeons currently board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. Join me as I interview the founders and the leaders of the surgical palliative care movement, a diverse group of surgeons dedicated to providing high quality palliative medicine to all surgical and trauma patients. Welcome to the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast. We heal with more than steel. Hi, everyone. This is Red Hoffman. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast. Today, I'm so excited to be talking to Dr. Rick Green. Rick is a surgical oncologist and is currently the medical director of the Cancer Data Registry at the Levine Cancer Institute in North Carolina. He is a past president of SAGES, past president of Southeastern Surgical Society, past chair of the American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer, past chair of the American Joint Committee on Cancer, and past chair of surgery at Carolina's Medical Center. He has also served as a senior medical advisor of General Surgery News for the past 25 years. Rick, thank you so much for being with me today. Red, it's such a pleasure to be with you. I have to admit, I had no idea how accomplished you were until I started reading about you on the internet. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you. As we're getting started, Rick, can you share a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where you trained, and how you became interested in a career in surgery? Sure. I'm, I'm basically a Southerner. I, I grew up in uh, Southern Virginia, a small town uh, south of Richmond. And uh, we had about 12,000 people in my community. I, I really always wanted to be a doctor. And so uh, that, that really was something that started when I was about five years old, I guess. I was fortunate to attend the University of Virginia, which is our state school, one of our state schools in Virginia, and then stayed on for medical school. I then went to Yale University for my training in surgery. And then uh, progressively, uh, after being in the Navy as a berry planter, I was on a nuclear aircraft carrier called the Nimitz, but I selectively then came down the East Coast. And uh, we've been in North Carolina for 23 years now. So I'm still a Southerner. I haven't lived as far south as as uh, North Carolina uh, and South Carolina, but uh, I've enjoyed my uh, my various places where I've lived. My my area of, of interest has been surgical oncology. It's sort of interesting how serendipity uh, works out because I, I started out to be a, a heart surgeon and I went to Yale to do cardiac surgery as, as well as general surgery. But as luck would have it, uh, I was what was called a, a, in the Berry Plan. The Berry Plan was something that was initially started back in the 1960s, but during the Vietnam era, this is the way that physicians were recruited to be in the military. And when you were a medical student, you decided what branch you wanted to be in. And I decided to be in the Navy. I don't know why, I just sort of liked the Navy. 
And uh, and then uh, you were given the opportunity of uh, going in uh, active duty after two years or after fully being fully trained. So the Navy told me that I was going to get, go in after two years. That means you did a traditional internship, what we usually call the intern year, and then you did a residency year. So you're essentially a PGY2. But during the spring of my PGY2 year, the Navy informed me that they didn't need me. So that was fine. And they said, you can stay and be fully trained in whatever you want to do. Well, the unfortunate part about that is that we had a pyramidal program. And for those who are not familiar with pyramidal programs, uh, that means that you had a certain number starting as interns. We had 16 people and all of us wanted to be chief residents and they only had four chief residents slots. So you competed against your your comrades for those positions. It wasn't the categorical training program that we're familiar with today. So I gave up my slot. And then I walked back to my chair and said, well, guess what? I've been told I can stay. He says, well, uh, unfortunately, you don't have a spot, but we do have a fellowship that we can give you for a laboratory experience from the American Cancer Society. Oh, wow. So I said, oh, that sounds good. He said, yeah. I said, you, we can send you to London for six months and you can work uh, over there, too. Well, that sounded good as well. But... Uh, I uh, said, well, you know, I'm really going into cardiac surgery. He said, well, you know, this is all I have for you. So needless to say, I loved my laboratory experience with the American Cancer Society and decided after that that I really wanted to dedicate my career uh, to being a surgical oncologist. So that's the way it it, it went. There's there's sort of a a Yiddish term called beshert, and this was beshert. It was meant to be. uh, I'm happy with the way my life turned out. I actually love that term. So thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> so as a surgical oncologist, I'm sure you've had to deliver bad news to many patients and many families. And I'm wondering, can you share some of your communication tips with us that you've used over the years? Absolutely. Um, and again, you know, being trained as a general surgeon, I when I first went to the University of South Carolina, a lot of my work was in trauma, and I did trauma for 17 years there, and uh, as well as general surgery and surgeon. And I, I guess that the hardest things for me was to tell a family about a loved one who has died totally unexpectedly, especially young people. And I think that was that was probably even much harder than uh, my my later years in which I've dealt with people who have had malignancy. I guess what you what you need to do is to when you approach a family, you you need to be totally empathetic. Uh, you can't be scientific. Uh, you have to be hands on. And and I I do I I like putting hands on. Uh, I always uh, enjoyed especially making rounds even with a lot of residents uh, sitting at the bedside, holding somebody's hand and talking to them uh, on morning rounds. And this is the way that I sort of handle things when I had to impart bad news, especially with family members. Many times uh, also, if things did not go particularly well or you found something in the operating room, uh, I would always feel that coming out and talk to a family, even during the operation, 
uh, and not waiting till the end of the operation was important uh, just to get them prepared for what they may be hearing, especially if we found a malignancy that was spread or some other untoward event. So I guess there's no magic to it. It's not just parting information. It's it's how you impart it. Uh, and uh, again, being uh, sort of one of the family and, and, and being very hands-on when you give information to people. I think that's that's the key. And then allowing them to ask you questions and uh, also making sure that they know you're not on a time clock. Mm. This is something that you're, you're willing to spend as much time with them as it takes and to answer all of their questions. Even though you know in your heart you have other things you need to do, this is the most important thing in their lives at that moment. Yeah, I I think so much of the good communication skills is all about like going back to basics, you know, using simple language, taking the time. I love the idea of using my hands as well. I've written about that lately, that whole struggle of not being as touchy anymore or right right now in in this pandemic has been really challenging because I feel like that Laying on hands and just saying, I'm here, I'm here with you is so important for patients and their families. And I think that's, that's really one of the problems with telehealth and telemedicine. As much as we will depend on that, and certainly we are now, uh, but we'll depend on that in the future, you lose something. And of course, you have hopefully facial expressions. Uh, you do, you can see people when you talk with them. But you do lose something and not being present in the room and having the ability for a hands-on opportunity. Yeah, it's so funny. I did a couple of telehealth visits yesterday in clinic. And like after each one, I was so teary. I just felt like while I was connecting on some level, I just missed that deep connection that you get from being in the same room as someone. Just challenge, a different challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. You you mentioned this a little bit, talking to patients and families about kind of finding things in the operating room that you weren't expecting. But I'm also wondering if you can talk, because I, I read an article that you were part of, a larger article that I think was published in the Bulletin of the American College of Surgeons a couple of years ago about dealing with surgical complications. And I'm wondering how you speak to patients and families about surgical complications. Right. This is extremely important. And I, I think that the main thing is honesty. That's what people want to hear. And I'm lucky, I guess, that I've had a, a minimum amount of things that I felt that I created a bad result. But bad results happen. Bad results happen from anesthesia, from Obviously, and as we got into laparoscopic and robotic surgery, uh, from placing certain instrumentation in the abdomen, uh, these kinds of things, uh, complications occur when you start with one strategy of an operation and have to convert to another strategy. Uh, so yes, I, I think that the problem that I've seen, and, and I, I tried to push this uh, when I when I directed mortality and morbidity conferences for many, many years, and there were complications, I always asked the residents and the attending surgeons how they handled that with the family. And I, I think that certainly 
this is so important because it would lead to a cascade of uh, events where the family does not put the surgeon in the best light or the the entire operating room team in the best light. So I think I think that's how I would do it. Be upfront. This is what happened. This is why it happened. And what we're trying to do is to make sure that we do everything we can to correct it, if it's correctable. And I will keep you up to date as to exactly what happens. Luckily, uh, in this litigious society that we live in, uh, I never did get sued in my in my entire career. That's incredible. Uh, which, I, which I count myself bucky. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think I think it has to do with how we approach things and the rapport that you create with a family going into a situation and being honest with them. So I, I, I think that's that's my main message. I've said to my trainees when, and because I um, say this to myself, you know, when that feeling comes up that you want to run away, that's the time to like dig your heels in and like stand still. This is the time where you need to be completely present with the family and round on them multiple times a day. And these are the people that need your cell phone number so that they can reach you. It's not a time to kind of shirk away from your responsibilities, even though I think it's uh, very human to want to like run in the other direction. That's right. And, you know, I I think that other methods of communication, I I had the good fortune when I first started in practice after my Navy experience in a small town in Maryland. This was a, a very rural area, not far from Baltimore, but about 30, 35 miles. And I had the opportunity actually to visit people in their homes. I would literally uh, be able to make house calls on people to help them with the dressing, to talk to them about a potential problem. And I I think that that, that's something we've certainly lost, but that was uh, something I really treasured. And also calling a patient uh, a week out, talking to the family on the phone. We we didn't have telehealth and and all of the... uh, modern technology at that point. This was in the uh, late 70s. But I think that really uh, made a big uh, impression on me how we can interact with families, even outside the hospital setting. And it seems the modern equivalent to that is having people have your phone number so that they can text you or call you if they need you. Because sometimes I feel like it's so difficult for me to find someone in the hospital sometimes. I can imagine what it's like for a patient to try to track someone down if they just have a simple question that we can answer. Absolutely. Keeping on that uh, idea of surgical complications, and because you were chair of surgery, did you have to ever counsel fellow surgeons about returning to the operating room after a complication? And, and what kind of advice do you have for people around that? Absolutely. I, I, I think uh, it's, it's devastating, and it has been devastating to, to surgeons who have had complications uh, where they feel they've created a major complication, uh, and especially the death of a patient. I know that this has ended surgeons' careers. It has to be handled uh, very, very uh, gingerly. So, yes, what I do first of all, is you don't use the open airing of a complication as as the prime motivator for getting somebody back to the operating room. 
it can be so devastating for a young surgeon, especially a resident, who feels that they've created a problem to stand up and air the problem. So uh, I, I think certainly for me, it was one-on-one counseling, bringing somebody into the office or taking them out for lunch or having a cup of coffee outside of the hospital and talking to them about really what happened. And this is the price sometimes we pay as well as the, the patient pays. Uh, we're not God. Uh, we don't presume to be God. And these things will happen. Uh, so I, I think, I think uh, unfortunately, many situations are not handled that way. And certainly in my training and many of us who are of my ilk, the, the only counseling we got was during the M&M session where you aired your uh, self and all of the uh, implication of your complication with your confreres. And it was devastating. Yeah, it's not the best counseling. Oh, my goodness. And (laughs) in many situations, it was almost like hazing uh, for a fraternity or sorority. Uh, And if you got through it, uh, you showed your mettle. So, you know, luckily, I will say luckily, the whole whole way that we we take care of complications has changed in, in most institutions, I think. So uh, again, it's it's the leadership. I, I think the you have to explain to people that what the captain of the ship uh, concept is. And yes, you do serve as captain of the ship. But in this day and age, so many other things come into play. And uh, it's not just you. It's a team approach. And I think one of the good things in surgery that we pushed in the last five to 10 years is the concept of the team and making making things ready when you start an operation to minimize, just as the concept of flying a plane, you, you minimize the, the, the problems, hopefully by doing your routine checks, and that is a team approach. So I, you know, I, that, that's been my philosophy. So you've served as the chair of the Commission on Cancer for the American College of Surgeons, as well as the chair of the American Joint Committee on Cancer, and I'm wondering if you could just speak, could probably speak for hours about this, but just speak about being a leader of both of these organizations, some of the takeaway points that you learned. And then if you could specifically speak about how you've seen palliative care be integrated into the care of cancer patients over the years. Well, as you said, I could speak for hours on this. I will <laughs> not bore you. Uh, but yes, I, I, I've really, I've loved my work with the College of Surgeons and both organizations are under the aegis of the college. You know, when the College of Surgeons started in 1913, the, the whole concept of quality care that we had was really with the cancer patient. And that's where it started. So the Commission on Cancer was called something else uh, in those early days, but it started out being uh, the the way that we looked at the quality of what was going on in institutions. So I was very proud to assume the uh, the leadership. Many people think the Commission on Cancer is a surgical organization, but actually what it is is made up of 57 organizations that are the leading organizations for cancer throughout the world. So when I assumed that in 2004, the uh, the chair of the commission 
it, it was really a, a high point for me. And and the the area that I really concentrated on was accreditation in hospitals. What uh, what institutions did to show that they were actually meeting standards of care. So early on, I was able to help craft some of the standards uh, that we use uh, to measure our our quality uh, in in cancer work in hospitals. And um, the current standards that we use, we brought in a standard of palliative care. We never had a standard for palliative care and what patients should expect in palliative care. You know, the the only thing most physicians knew was hospice. Right. Uh, Hospice was palliative care. It equaled palliative care. And one of the things we tried to make sure of is that we needed to train people that palliative care was not hospice care. And um, I've, I've been sort of on a, as you have, on a mission for a number of years to make sure we train people and educate them. So that's one of the areas, uh, and certainly the education uh, of the commission is important. And then I got involved in the late 80s in creating the National Cancer Database. So this was this became our only national registry, and we have now 37 million cases in the National Cancer Database. So data that's put in by 1,540 hospitals that are accredited by the commission currently go into the National Cancer Database. So when you pick up a journal article and you see uh, a some submission and it's using NCDB or National Cancer Database data, it really makes me very proud because we, we started that with the American Cancer Society and the American College of Surgeons. That's an so awesome you, you, legacy. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm extremely proud of, of that work. And you ask about my work with the American Joint Committee on Cancer. Well, that's the organization that really has the oversight on the staging concepts using certain staging strategies such as the TNM system. So when I became chair of that, I also took over as editor of the AJCC Cancer Staging Manual. So that was 22, 23 years ago. So we're now into our eighth edition. And this is the, um, this is the staging strategy that's used to characterize and classify cancers throughout the world. So when we talk to patients who have stage one, two, three, or four, this is the staging system that we, we use. And so my main issue here is to educate physicians about staging, especially young physicians. I call it the language of cancer. TNM is our language of cancer. And so when do you learn a language the easiest? When you're young, Mm. when you're a student, when you're a resident, not when you're old, crusty attending. (laughs) So, um, you know, the, uh, my, my work and now what I do is I go and give a lot of talks around and work with cancer registrars. Many people don't understand the work that the cancer registrars do. They collect the data uh, from uh, our our patients, and they they put the data into the National Cancer Database. So you see, both organizations have really come full circle for me, and given me the opportunities to to do what I really enjoy. Wow, thank you for that. So we recently met at the Southeastern Surgical Conference. I was so lucky that I went to this. Um, lunchtime talk and you were speaking. And I loved listening to you talk about the importance of planning for your life after surgery. So I'm wondering, how have you been doing that? And how do you suggest that all of our listeners do that? Well, this is this is a great question. Uh, first of all, I, I dislike the term retirement. 
and I, I don't, I, I certainly, when I talk to people and I've given uh, a number of talks on this, I said, you, you really need to think on how you're going to reinvent yourself even before you get out of your uh, clinical uh, work. I couldn't imagine my giving up my interest in medicine. Like some colleagues, when they leave the operating room or leave the clinic, they don't want to have anything to do with medicine anymore. And I, I, I can't even equate that because medicine has been such an important area for me. And as I said, I've been thinking about medicine since I was five years old. So to me, it's been reinventing myself into doing podcasts uh, on medicine, uh, in writing about medicine, uh, in lecturing, uh, and of course, uh, keeping involved in organizations like the Southeastern Surgical Congress, uh, the American College of Surgeons, uh, SAGES, uh, a lot of the organizations that were so important to me uh, during my clinical years. So that's how I've, I've done it. It's not really magic, but I, I always tell people uh, there's always an opportunity to volunteer to be a mentor for a young uh, clinician. And I think that's one of the things we miss. There are people out in practice uh, that really need mentoring. And uh, I think I have something to offer them after being in the operating room for 45 years. Well, I've kind of like chosen you as one of my life creative mentors when I met you because I, I really was, it really made me think a lot about the importance of having you know, a one, a five, a 10 year plan, not just for your academic life, but for your life in general. And that if I want this beautiful life, after I transition out of the operating room, I need to be planting some of those seeds now. So that that grass is waiting for me when I'm done. Well, I'm proud of you. That's what you should be doing. Thank you. Um, I read your recent piece that you wrote about the joys of creative writing in general surgery news. And I'm wondering more if you can talk about your creative life with writing and also with your recovery room show. Absolutely. I, uh, well, I mentioned I went to the University of Virginia. And although I, I always felt I was going to go to medical school, I, I thought to myself, you know, I, I really wanted more of a broad education. So I became an English major. Uh, I took all the requisite courses, of course, but I, I loved uh, my my work as an English major in college. I sort of developed an interest in writing. I used to write for certain publications uh, at the University of Virginia. So when I finished, obviously, I got involved. And one of the things I saw early on is that young physicians, especially surgeons, really didn't get involved in writing. They, If they had the art, they lost it. And especially now over the last 10 years or 12 years that we've had the electronic medical record, uh, writing is, a, is sort of a lost art, sitting down and, and writing something. So I've really tried to push this. So what we did, we created a, uh, a situation where young residents could could put their their writing into the general surgery news this was the first time that we actually had this writing contest. And so I geared my editorial, which I try to write every month or so for general surgery news to the joys that I've had in writing. And that what we wanted to do in this particular publication is to foster creative writing uh, for, for young residents. So, uh, you know, that I, I guess that's, that's where I've come from. And so I, I, I often feel that when I finish an editorial, and I've, I can't 
I, I don't know how many I've actually written over 25 years, but it's been quite a few. I, I have this, this sense of real accomplishment, especially when I put the words down and they really go back and try to hone the words into really something that's very meaningful. I, I, it's, it's just I can't describe the feeling that I have that you've created this piece. And it can only be 500 words, 700 words. I, I try to shy away from long tomes. I think people don't read things that are really very, very long. And I'd really keep it short and very uh, to the point. So that's the way my writing is. And then uh, you mentioned my my work in uh, certain certain uh, radio things. I, I started out in high school with my own radio show. I was a disc jockey in high school, <laughs> and I had I had my ra- a radio show in Petersburg, Virginia, and it was a high school show. It was our our high school had a little half hour slot, and I was the sort of the host. So I continued this through my college days, and I was a rock and roll DJ. And I still do dances, by the way, for organizations. I still uh, I still do this uh, if you're looking for somebody. What I, I did uh, oh, about 12, 13 years ago, I thought it would be nice to have something. And my idea was to get a show on National Public Radio. So I, I actually um, contacted a friend of mine who is married to uh, uh, Nina Totenberg. Oh, wow. Uh, who, and, and Nina, of course, uh, is a major figure in NPR in the Washington, D.C. area. So I, I talked to them about having a show on NPR. And, uh, you know, I spun my concept of having a medical talk show. I really wanted to be a live call-in show. But they said, you know, really, they didn't have anything at that point. So I contacted Davidson College, which is about 25 miles from, from Charlotte, and they had a uh, a radio show that actually was the classical music station for NPR. So uh, I said, you know, I'd like to have a talk show maybe doing at your studio. And they said, sure. So we, we hired a, a producer and we uh, I had that show there for probably four or five years. And I named it The Recovery Room. I contacted the American College of Surgeons and they they sort of uh, underwrote the show because you have to have the underwriting for a show when you do it on NPR. And then recently I've been doing uh, more of my podcasting in the show uh, at the NPR station in, uh, in Charlotte. And then that spawned some other interest in doing podcasting. I do a podcast called Speaking of Serge Ankh, which I do for the Society for Surgical Oncology uh, and, and some, some other things. Uh, so, you know, it's it's really given me another outlet that I enjoy because it started with that radio work back in high school. I love it. I'll make sure to put a link to these in the show notes so that people can find them. So, Rick, I'm wondering, as we're um, wrapping up, you have held so many titles in your life and have done so many different things um, within the world of surgery. I'm curious, was there one title or one position that you've held that has been the most meaningful or the most challenging or the most something for you? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, of course, I've, I've loved many of the things I've done. I, I think really one of the things that was the greatest challenge when I left my surgical training in July of 1976 as a chief resident, 
uh, it was June 30th, 1976, or July 1st, I went directly into the U.S. Navy, as I've mentioned, as a Berry Plan physician, and I was sent directly to a nuclear aircraft carrier with 6,000 men on it. And they flew me over to uh, the ship. Uh, I was about two weeks out of my residency. And all of a sudden, I was the surgeon and in charge of the surgical needs for 6,000 people out on a nuclear aircraft carrier uh, in the middle of the Mediterranean. Wow. (laughs) So, um, and you have to understand, I was leaving a wife, a six-month-old child, for an eight-month deployment where I would not be seeing them into an incredibly strange environment that I never even knew anything about. It took me about three weeks to find my stateroom on the ship. Uh, it's, it's such a complex environment. And then to have not only be the surgeon, but be the confidant of many of these young men. And I say men because at that time, there were no women on nuclear carriers or on combatant ships. There were only men. And so as the sort of one of the senior medical officers, people would come to me, not necessarily with their surgical issues, but with their incredible emotional issues. Mm. Young men who were 17, 18, 19, who found out or who knew they were gay, for instance, and who had nowhere to share this. And at that time, if you said you were gay, you were out of the Navy. And so they had no one to talk to. Uh, And other things, marital problems. Uh, I found myself being the psychotherapist uh, for the ship as well. So that was an incredibly challenging time for me. Uh, it was a it was a great time. I, I would never uh, want to trade that time in for anything. And I did about 300 operations uh, on the uh, Nimitz. I actually got almost an opportunity to be in a first run movie uh, that was filmed on the Nimitz. Um, <laughs> what movie? Well, you need to get on it on Netflix. It's called The Final Countdown. Okay. The final countdown was about a nuclear aircraft carrier who gets that gets in an incredibly bad storm and goes in through a time warp. And the time warp they they finally end up in is December 6, 1941. So here they are. These are this is a 6,000 people on this nuclear carrier. They know what's going to happen the next day. But they, the question is, can they alert anybody and stave off the December 7th attacks? So um, I was going to have the speaking part of the surgeon, of the physician on that ship. And um, Kirk Douglas, Michael Douglas, James Farentino, they were in the movie. But as luck would have it, as luck would have it, uh, the, the movie got delayed. We got back and this we were back in Norfolk, Virginia. I was sent to my next duty post, uh, which is at the Naval Hospital in Portsmouth. So they would not allow me to take the time out to shoot that movie. And so that could have changed the course of my entire career. But you ought to see the final countdown. I think you'd enjoy it. That sounds really good. Thank you for 
answering that question, it's very interesting. It's not what I expected you to answer when I read all of these positions that you've held, but it reminded me that really we're all physicians first and then surgeons. Absolutely. Yeah, it's lovely. Rick, as we're finishing up, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, first of all, I I just salute you uh, as someone who's... uh, trained as a surgeon and now has gotten into palliative care. I think this is this is so important for the word to get out about what palliative care is, not only to all physicians, but certainly to the surgical community. So I just I just want to congratulate you for the work you're doing in uh, in getting the word out to uh, uh, to all of your colleagues read about about this very important area that we need to continue to push because I think we need to push the concept that palliative care starts at the diagnosis. And for me, as a cancer surgeon, uh, it's it's so important to get that message out. It's not something that that we think about that's left to the last six months or six weeks or six days of life. This starts at the beginning of the process. Yeah, that just that reminder that palliative care is meant to be given along alongside disease-modifying treatment, that the palliative care providers are there to help patients manage their symptoms so that they can continue with the treatments that the oncologist and the surgical oncologists are offering. Right. I agree completely. Well, Rick, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate your time. I appreciate all that you've accomplished and all that you've really gifted to the um, world of surgical oncology and all that you do in your creative endeavors. Well, Red, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And it's been wonderful to be with you. Okay. Well, stay healthy and stay safe. Thank you. You too. And uh, we love to see you in Charlotte and Charlotte someday. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on the latest episodes. To learn more about the Surgical Palliative Care community, follow us on Twitter at SurgePalCare. If you'd like to get more involved with the Surgical Palliative Care social media team, please reach out on Twitter or via email at surgicalpalliativecare at gmail.com. Lastly, take good care of yourselves and take good care of each other.